As we continue in worship this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 2, where we will consider verses 18 through 27. As we find our way to 1 John chapter 2, I want to frame us, give us some reference some context for where we are in this passage. This passage comes from a letter which was written by John, the beloved apostle. He wrote this letter to encourage Christians in the midst of confusion and conflict both within the church and without. And John tells us that he writes this letter so that genuine Christians may know that we truly belong to Christ. And so to help us, he gives us real-life practical tests to examine the genuineness of our faith. Chapter 1 includes the first test, which is the confession of sin and trust in Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. Those who belong to Christ know our sin and hate our sin because it is contrary to God's holy character. Chapter 2 begins with the test of deliberate obedience to Christ's commands. Those who truly belong to Christ do not ignore or grumble against His commands, but instead we love Christ's commands. We strive to order all of our lives in obedience to His words and His ways. Chapter 2 then continues with the third test of genuine Christian, which is love for the saints. Those who love Christ will indeed love their brothers and sisters in Christ as an overflow and response of the love of Christ that has been poured into our hearts. Finally, leading up to today's section, John taught that genuine Christians love the Father rather than setting their affections on the sinful enticements of this world in which we live. And now, as we near the end of chapter 2, John begins to comfort the saints. He strives to anchor us against the deceptions of false teachers who have gone out from the true church. He settles the potential confusion that comes when those we've regarded as brothers and sisters drift away from the church and from the way of Christ. And he roots the confidence of the believer in the anointing that we have as we have received the Holy Spirit, which confirms to us the old truth of the gospel over and over again against the lies of those who are opposed to Christ. And so with our context in mind, I'd like to invite you to follow along with me as we read from 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. The Apostle writes, Little children... It is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. This is God's perfect, holy, inspired Word. Let us go to Him in prayer, seeking His help to understand His Word. God, our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy to us in Christ We thank you for your kindness, that you have condescended to speak to us in language that we can understand. God, we do thank you for the blessing and privilege it is to have your word in our own language. 
God, we know that while we can understand the words and propositions and phrases that are contained within this passage, this very passage here reveals the necessity of your Spirit to illuminate our hearts and to cause us to understand and to recognize the truth of your Word. So God, we ask that you would work in us by your Spirit. We ask that you would convict every heart who is here. As we sung earlier, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come would open our eyes to see the things of, of, your, of your word, that he would convict us of our sin and lead to Jesus' blood and cause us to find in him the only and the perfect satisfaction for our guilt before you. God, we pray for those today who uh, do not yet know what it is to be united to Christ through faith in him. We pray for those who have not yet received your spirit God, we ask that you would cause your spirit to fall on them today. That you would cause them to be awakened to the reality of these truths in your word. That you would cause them to trust in Christ, to cling to him and to abide in him. And in him to find union with the Father and eternal life. God, please strengthen me to speak with boldness as I ought to speak. And please cause all your people to hear your word with faith and to respond in glad submission. God, please strengthen us and comfort us by your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin with exposition today. We'll consider the passage in four sections. First, in verses 18 and 19, we consider the Antichrists and the last hour. The Antichrists and the last hour. Now, these are two commonly misunderstood concepts which can certainly bring a lot of confusion and even fear to Christians as we try to read and understand and interpret these things. And so to help us avoid confusion, I want to explain the two concepts in the way John is using them here. First, I want to consider what he means by the last hour. Now, this phrase, this idea of the last hour or the last time or the last days is something we see again and again through Scripture And it's something that has varied uses. There are references to the last day being the day of Christ's return to judge and redeem the world. And yet there are other references to the last days where the scripture writers in the New Testament refer to their present time as already being in the last days. And so here, as John is using this concept of the last hour, he's not speaking about the very final day when Christ will return to judge the world. But rather, he is speaking about the present age in which we live, in which he lived, the age of the church. He says here that the fact of this last hour is proven by the presence of many antichrists. He says, even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And he wrote this some 2,000 years ago. When John says that his hearers know it's the last hour because of these antichrists, he calls to mind the word of Christ in the Olivet Discourse. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me for a moment in your Bible to Matthew, the book of Matthew in chapter 24. Here in Matthew 24, Jesus has prophesied the destruction of the temple. He told his disciples that there is coming a time when not one stone will stand upon another. And so they ask him, what will be the signs of when this is going to happen? He answers them and he tells them of the great trouble that will come on the city of Jerusalem. The great persecution that will come upon the city and how they must flee. And then in verse 24, or in verse, um, sorry, in verse 23. In verse 23 of Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus turns his attention to what happens just after, just after the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, beginning in verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, He is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man.
The presence of false Christs and false prophets in the church and around the church is a sign that the age of the temple has passed and the age of the church in all nations has come. This is what John refers to by speaking of the last hour. Namely, it is this church age after the ending of the Jewish age, where all that remains in the arc of redemptive history is for Christ to return for final judgment and redemption. The word hour here does not have to indicate any kind of short time. That same word is used all over in Scripture. It's used in the, in the broader culture, in Greek as well, to indicate a season or a period of time in reference to others. John Calvin explains helpfully for us. He says regarding this very verse, The apostle, according to the common mode adopted in the Scripture, declares to the faithful that nothing more now remained but that Christ should appear for the redemption of the world. But as he fixes no specific time, he did not allure the men of that age by a vain hope, nor did he intend to cut short in future the course of the church and the many successions of years during which the church has hitherto remained in the world. And doubtless, if the eternity of God's kingdom be borne in mind, so long a time will appear to us as but a moment. Though thousands of years have come and gone in this last hour, yet in the scale of eternity we are considering but a moment, but an instant. That's the last hour. Now, who then are these antichrists that John refers to? He says first regarding them that they went out from us. And by saying that, he's indicating that they once professed the apostolic doctrine. They once professed to agree with the teaching of the apostles in order to be counted among the redeemed within the church. Secondly, he indicates that they now deserted apostolic doctrine because they went out. They departed from the faithful church. And here we see the first indication, contrary to what many liberal scholars today seek to study and seek to claim about the early church, many liberal scholars will look at the Bible and look at history and say that in the first century there was not one Christianity, but there were many plural Christianities, that many people had different versions of it, and eventually it was this form that we have in the Bible that won out. Now, clearly, that's not true from Jesus' own apostles. The church clearly knew who was to be recognized as within the church and who was to be recognized as outside of the church. They went out from us. They have departed. They do not belong to Christ. Thirdly, John goes on to indicate that these antichrists are those who never have been converted or anointed by the Spirit. In verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Even while they were within the Christian community, even while they were within the church, they did not truly belong to the church. They were not of the same substance and nature as the redeemed Christians who they once called brothers. Finally, we see concerning these antichrists that they were exposed as unbelievers by their departure from the truth. John says that they departed that it might be made manifest what they were. Here we see an important principle that union with the church is a sign of union with Christ. And to depart from the church is a sign of departing from Christ. We live in a day and age when departure from the church while claiming the name of Christ is rampant in our culture. It's very common for people to claim to belong to Christ and yet to separate themselves, to divorce themselves from the church, and to call themselves Christians still. But here we see that the departure from the church is a sign of departure from Christ. Secondly, John goes on in the next section, the next major section of our exposition, to explain how we are anointed in the truth. In verses 20 and 21, John turns to comfort the Christians by reminding us of our anointing. He comforts us by three aspects of our anointing. First, he comforts us by the substance of our anointing, which is the Holy Spirit. The Greek word chrisma, translated as anointing, is only used in this passage alone out of the whole New Testament. 
In the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word anointing refers specifically to the anointing oil which was used to set apart the priests, the tabernacle, and the congregation as devoted to the Lord. The root of this word, krios, only appears a handful of times in the New Testament, and every one of those refers specifically to the spiritual anointing of Jesus himself for his earthly ministry. Acts 10.38 uses this word, krios, to say that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That's what's so amazing and comforting about this truth is, as John explains, that we have an anointing from the Holy One. The anointing that we have is the Spirit Himself. The anointing that we have that marks us as belonging to, as belonging to God is the divine third person of the Trinity who takes up residence within us. We who are in Christ possess the same Spirit who empowered Jesus for His earthly ministry. What a comfort and encouragement that is to us. The Spirit is poured out here on all believers. He says, you have an anointing. He speaks to all the believers and says, you have an anointing. By virtue of being united to Christ through faith, we have been marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit to set us apart to God and to identify us as His peculiar people in the world, as His kingdom of priests. And this transmission of the same Spirit who empowered Christ from Christ to His people is why John says that our anointing is from the Holy One. He comforts us here, secondly, by the source of our anointing, which is the triune God, and especially Christ the Son. In the Old Testament, the Holy One is the title for God the Father. God Himself says in Isaiah 43, verse 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel your Savior. In the New Testament, this same title is applied to Jesus twice by the Apostle Peter, first in his confession of Jesus as the Messiah, and then again in his second sermon after the Spirit came at Pentecost. He says to the crowd in Acts 3, verses 14 and 15, but you denied the Holy One and the just, speaking there of Christ, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. By saying here that we have an anointing from the Holy One, God, uh, Jesus, John, by saying that we have an anointing from the Holy One, John comforts us with the divine source and substance of our anointing. Christ, the incarnate Son of God, has set His Holy Spirit upon us. This is the blessing upon blessing of the Christian life. Because of Christ, God Himself lives within us by His Spirit. Thirdly, John comforts the Christian by the significance of our anointing, which is that it gives spiritual sight. John says in verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. What a profound statement that is. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. When the Antichrists are spouting lies, when the Antichrists are teaching doctrine contrary to the truth laid down by the apostles who Jesus himself appointed, when lies abound, when deception is everywhere, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Continues in verse 21 saying, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Because of this anointing that we have, Christians do not need to fear lies and liars. The Spirit who caused us to trust in Christ and who caused us to trust in His gospel gives us spiritual sight to see and to understand and to believe and to trust and to persevere in Christ who is the truth incarnate. John wants us to know as believers that we don't have to be shaken. We don't have to re-examine the foundations of our faith every time someone comes up with a new doctrine or teaching that contradicts the message of Christ we have received. The anointing that we have had from the beginning gives us eyes to see what the Antichrists cannot see. We can see the enduring truth and beauty of the gospel. And so John wants us here to exercise discernment in recognizing the lies of those who oppose the faithful message of Christ. 
As we move on, John turns to contrast the spirit of truth in us with the lies of the liars who depart from the church. He turns his attention to exposing the lies of the Antichrist. This is our third section in our exposition, the lies of the Antichrist. The lies of these Antichrists who departed from the Apostles' teaching are not unique to the first century. We see them there, but all we have to do is talk to someone out on the streets, talk to someone in your neighborhood, talk to someone in your workplace, or even in our own families to hear the same old lies echoing down through the ages. John exposes several lies here. The first fundamental lie of the Antichrists is that Jesus is not the Christ. He says in verse 22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Denying that Jesus is the Christ. There are three common ways that we see this throughout history and even today. The first way in which people deny that Jesus is the Christ is by denying his divinity saying that Jesus was merely a man, saying that Jesus was not truly God. At the time of John, we had the Ebionite controversy rising up where they were saying that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was the Messiah only as a man in right relationship to God. He was the Messiah only as a man on whom the Holy Spirit came. If anyone's familiar with some of the errant teachings today, you might recognize that same kind of language that comes to us from churches like Bethel and Hillsong in the so-called New Apostolic Reformation. They teach that Jesus did all that he did only as a man in right relationship to God. And by so doing, they are denying that he is the Christ according to a biblical definition of the Christ. They're denying that he is God in the flesh, that he from his birth was the word made flesh, the word, the eternal son of God made flesh, not merely a man in right relationship to God. We see a denying of divinity also in Arianism, where they held that, uh, that Jesus is simply a man, that he accomplished much in his life, but that he was not truly the son of God that he was not truly an uncreated being, but that he was the first and greatest creation of God by whom all things were created. And if you have your ears open to other controversies today, you might recognize that same doctrine in the doctrine of Jehovah's Witnesses, in the doctrine of Mormons, who claim that Jesus was created, that he was a spiritual offspring of God the Father, and that he became all that he was through creation, which is, again, contrary to the biblical definition of what it means that Jesus is the Christ. So the first way that people deny that Jesus is the Christ is by denying his divinity. The second way in which many deny that Jesus is the Christ is by denying the need for his atonement. Part of of Jesus' role as the Christ is specifically to atone for sins, to bring forgiveness of sins by the shedding of his own blood to satisfy the guilt that we cannot satisfy. At his day, in his day, in John's day here, it was the Jews primarily who were denying this atonement, saying that we don't need Jesus' blood to atone for us because we have something already. We have the sacrificial system, and that's good enough. Through our works and obedience, we can earn our right standing with God. Today, we have a functional denial of the atonement, ironically enough, in what calls itself the Catholic Church. In the Catholic Church, there is a denial that the blood of Christ is necessary and sufficient to reconcile us to God. There is a denial that the blood of Christ laid down once for all time is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. But there is the addition of our own work, saying by our own system of obedience, our own system of righteousness, we can earn our own reconciliation with God. These are purely contrary to Scripture. They deny the atonement of Christ, the sufficiency and necessity of the atonement. A third common way that we see a denial of Jesus as the Christ is by denying his authority. And denying his authority doesn't always come with words, but it often comes with deeds. Augustine of Hippo points out that the greatest lie of the Antichrists comes when they profess that Jesus is the Christ with their lips, but then they deny it with their actions. 
He points to this as a biblical principle that comes to us in, in Paul's letter to Titus, where Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even in their mind and conscience, they are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. See, these antichrists who deny the authority of, of Christ, the authority of Jesus, often reveal themselves in due time by separation from the church when their rebellious lifestyle is exposed or even confronted. Their separation may come voluntarily or it may come through the process of church discipline. When these antichrists who deny the authority of Jesus leave voluntarily, this separation often comes under false pretense as excuses are given of busyness, of relational problems, of inconvenience, or of differing preferences. Those excuses are given to distract from their own rebellion and to soothe their conscience as they remain in stubborn opposition to Christ's authority over them. In the first century, these were pagans who maintained their former lifestyle even as they joined themselves to the church. Today, we see this in liberal so-called Christianity and nominal so-called Christianity. Today, the liberal or the progressive Christian denies the authority of Christ's commands by denying the reliability of his word as recorded by his apostles. They claim that they can know Jesus apart from the scriptures. And they hold themselves as judges over the scriptures, over what the apostles wrote, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it convenient that their judgment over the scripture always falls in line with the desires of the godless society around them. It's far more than convenient. It's unsurprising, and it exposes their true motives as carnal, fleshly, not spiritual. The second major group we see today is the nominal Christian. The nominal Christian may be quite conservative regarding the inspiration of Scripture, and yet they may be completely unwilling to expose their own life to the light of Scripture to see whether they are truly in the faith. Their patterns of rebellion may be hidden and denied, or their rebellion may be excused according to some extenuating circumstances. Oh, yes, I know what it says, but you don't understand my circumstance, my situation. Or they may excuse themselves according to a radical misuse of the grace of God in Christ, saying that God understands, God will forgive me in due time, while there's no repentance of sin. So whether by denying the divinity, denying the atonement, or denying the authority of Christ, antichrists are united in a rejection of Jesus as the Christ who he proved himself to be by his miracles, by his holiness, and by his death and resurrection. The second major lie that John exposes here from the antichrist is that they claim to have the Father while rejecting the Son. Or as we might hear today, many say, I don't need Jesus to be good with God. Me and the man upstairs, we have an understanding. How many times do we hear these kinds of things? We hear this lie often today from those who claim to be spiritual but not religious. They claim to know God and to know that they have a right relationship with God apart from any doctrinal authority. The basis of their confidence is simply their own ability to comfort their own conscience and to feel that they are naturally a good person. Contrary to what Scripture reveals, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We hear this same lie that people can be good with God without Jesus from universalists and from pluralists and from idolaters. These antichrists differ from those who are spiritual but not religious because these claim a doctrinal authority for their confidence of having the Father without the Son. Many religious systems teach that all people will be fine after this life, that God will shine down His favor on all regardless of what they've done regardless of what they believed. Universalists claim the name of Christ while contradicting Scripture, teaching that God has forgiven all people of their sins regardless of faith in Christ and submission to Him. Pluralists teach on the basis of many world religions that all roads lead to heaven and that all religions are basically good and basically the same in producing good people. They miss the entire distinction of what Christianity is. I was speaking to a Muslim a few weeks ago who was talking about his faith and Judaism and Christianity and saying they're all basically the same. 
And I told him the distinction, and he was floored that he had never heard that before. He had never heard that Christianity is not a system of how to be a good enough person. That Christianity is a faith in, uh, in one who was perfect for me, in one who gave his life for me, in one who reconciled me to God when I was helpless. Idolaters, along with the Roman Catholics and with self-righteous Jews back to the first century, believe that by their works, by their offerings, according to their religion, they are able to secure their own redemption and do not need to depend on the righteousness of another. In all of these systems, the fundamental lie is that God's justice does not require the condemnation of sinners, that I don't need a Savior. They believe that a sinner can be good enough to deserve God's reward instead of His wrath, But because God is indeed perfectly righteous and because God is indeed perfectly just, He cannot forgive sins without satisfaction of the wrath that is owed. And He cannot admit any into His heaven who do not have perfect righteousness, which has only ever been accomplished by one man. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Jesus, the Christ. The truth is the familiar, faithful words of Jesus Himself from John 14. Verses 6 and 7. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. See, those who deny the Son while claiming to have a right relationship with God are deluded. They've rejected and despised the most clear manifestation of God himself in the person of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, in whom the fullness of God dwells. They've despised God's own Son, and yet they claim to be his friends. This is why John says here in our passage, 1 John 2, verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. John turns then in the remainder of our passage to exhort the believers, calling us to abide in the Word of God. We are called to abide in the Word of God. This is verses 24 through 27. What is it that we're called to abide in? What does it mean to abide in the Word of God? He says here, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. In what you heard from the beginning, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Here it's interesting, perhaps surprising, perhaps confounding at first, that what we are called to abide in as the Word of God is both a message and a person. We're called to abide in a message and a person. The first half of verse 24 calls our attention back to what John said in the opening of this letter. Here, in chapter 2, verse 24, he says, Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Now, I want you to look back with me at the beginning of chapter 1 of this same epistle in the first three verses. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ." That which John heard from the beginning, what he proclaims to us is the life which was with the Father, was manifested to the apostles to be seen and handled personally. What he declares to us that he has heard from the beginning is nothing other than Christ himself. This is the same reality about Christ that John exposed in the first chapter of his gospel. There in the gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 14, he explains this great mystery as he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, And the Word became 
flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus is the word of God, the truth of God, the message of God made flesh. And so to abide in Jesus is to abide in the truth. And to abide in God's truth is to abide in Jesus. That's what John is saying in 1 John 2, 24. And in the second half, he brings the two together. He says, if what you heard, the message, if what you heard abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. To abide in the message of Christ is to abide in Christ. John goes on to encourage our abiding in the Word of God by teaching us the blessings that we have by abiding in the Word. First, he says that by abiding in the Word, we have fellowship with God. If you've grown up in the church, if you've been around the church for a long time, to be in right relationship with God may become something that sounds familiar to us. It may become something that sounds unimportant to us, insignificant to us. But we have the privilege. We were enemies. We were enemies of God. We had broken His law. We deserve His wrath. We deserve His condemnation. We deserve all that Jesus suffered. That's what we deserve. And instead, because of Christ, we can have fellowship with God. God can call us friend. God can call us son. God can call us daughter. What grace that is. What a marvel that is that we can take. We can take it so lightly, can't we? In family worship, my family's been reading through 2 Samuel, and we read of uh, the man, I, I've forgotten his name now. I knew his name a moment ago. I've forgotten his name. Uh, Shimei, thank you. We read of Shimei. Shimei who cursed David, saying that he's a murderer. And that Absalom taking over the kingdom is what David deserved because of his murder. And David, in the first place, in his own heart, knew, I am a murderer. And while he's not talking about the right thing, I am guilty. And I deserve everything that he's hurling at me. It's God who sent him here to curse me. And Absalom is defeated, and David returns, and Shimei is pleading with him for mercy. The first one to welcome him back into Israel... And David says, today's a day for celebration. Today's not a day for executions. I won't kill you. I won't put you to death for what you did, for the offense of hurling insults and hurling rocks at the king. But then when he's dying, he says to his son, I promised I wouldn't kill him. You know what to do about Shimei. You deal with Shimei. That's our heart. That's the human heart. That's the offense that we take. The offense that David, who had a heart after God, took when someone offended him. How much worse is our offense against God? How much worse is our betrayal of him, our insulting of the one who made us from nothing, that we would stand up and say, no, you don't have authority over me. I will go my own way. And God doesn't respond to us by telling his son, you know what to do with them. You know how to pay them back for what they did to me. He says to his son, I have a plan for them. He says to his son, you know what to do about them. You know what to do for them. You love them as I love them. You give your own life as a sacrifice for theirs. What a mystery it is that through Christ we have fellowship with God. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. He gives us the second benefit. He says, and this is the promise that he has promised us. Eternal life. When Jesus prayed to his Father, he said, this is eternal life, that they would know you and your Son whom you have sent. The fellowship with God is the essence of eternal life. It's how we obtain eternal life, and it's the blessing and the joy of eternal life that we 
know God and we know His Son forever. Thirdly, as we abide in the Word, we have anointing in the truth. He says these in verse 26, These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. Because we're anointed in the truth, we have stability and we have discernment in times of conflict, in times of trial, in times of opposition. Now here, what does John mean when he says, you do not need that anyone teach you? Does he mean that this whole exercise of preaching is a waste of time and I really shouldn't have tried to teach you anything today? Does he mean that his own letter, which is sent to teach them, is useless and meaningless? No, of course not. What John has in view here when he says you do not need that anyone teach you is that they do not need, again, a new teaching about the basic things of union with God through Christ. What he has in view is these novel reformulations of how people obtain eternal life. Jeremiah 31, promising the new covenant in verses 33 and 34, promises this blessing of our anointing in the truth as a privilege of the new covenant age. God speaks through the prophet and says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. If you have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, according to the scriptures, you don't need anyone to teach you the way to receive life. You have received life. You know the truth of the gospel. You have trusted it, and the gospel of Christ does not change. Today, even many modern seminaries require novelty as a criteria for a graduate dissertation. It has to be something new that no one has ever thought of before. How contrary to the scriptures that is. We have many charismatic churches that claim an ongoing revelation from God concerning what Christians must do and must believe in order to be saved. We have churches in our own city saying that unless you perform miraculous works, you cannot be saved. Unless the gospel is preached with miraculous works, you cannot be saved. This is the new teaching that the Antichrists are adding to the Scriptures. The new teaching that the Antichrists are adding to the words of the Apostles. This is what he says we do not need. Because the Spirit of truth has caused us to trust the gospel. And the gospel does not change. We need to abide. We need to remain. We need to live, dwell plant ourselves in the same gospel that we heard from the apostles, the same gospel that we received at the beginning of our life in Christ. And the blessing of our anointing is that the Spirit will cause us to abide in Christ through faith. He says, just as the anointing has taught you, you will abide in Him. 1 Peter 1 verse 5, one of my favorite verses, says that we are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, that God will keep all of his elect in Christ by the work of the Spirit. And this doctrine of preservation is the basis and power that undergirds the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which we saw in verse 19, where John said that if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Genuine believers will persevere. They will continue in faith until the end. Why? Not because of our strength, but because of the Spirit's work in us, because we're being guarded by the power of God through faith. As He confirms to us, as He confirms to our hearts, the truth that we have once believed, 
and as He preserves us in faith until the end. I want to turn now to application. How should we respond to God's Word today? First, as we've seen these warnings of the Antichrists who have gone out from the church, the first thing we all need to do is to examine ourselves to see if we may be Antichrist, if we may be opposed to Christ, to examine if we, in one of the ways we discussed, are, are rejecting that Jesus is the Christ, denying that Jesus is the Christ? Are we functionally denying His authority by living in open rebellion to His law? Perhaps we keep it a secret, but our hearts are laid bare before God. Perhaps we can hide it from others within the church, our lifestyle of rebellion, where we excuse our sin, justify our sin, permit our sin. But we cannot hide it from God. Those who do not submit to Jesus as Christ with authority to rule as king do not have life in him. If you find that to be yourself today, if you find yourself to be one who is opposed to Christ, whether in word or in deed, trust in Christ. Humble yourself before him. Repent of your rebellion. Turn to him and seek his forgiveness. Like Shimei, confess your sin before him. Confess the wickedness of your rebellion against him and plead with him for mercy knowing that he is not he is not weak like david but that all who come to christ in faith will be saved all who come to him he will in no wise turn away our second point of application christian abide in the ancient truth of christ abide in the ancient truth of christ We need to plant ourselves firmly. We need to stand firm and hold fast to the truth of the gospel that God has revealed to us in his word. We need to trust the faithful message of the apostles whom Jesus himself commissioned to be his representatives, to record his words, to transmit his message and his gospel to us. We need to be content with the same old paths, the same old gospel. The first way... We go about abiding in the ancient truth of Christ is by knowing the truth through the Word. We need to know our Bibles. We need to sit under the preaching of the Word. We need to read our Bibles, study our Bibles, meditate on God's words so that we know the truth. And we need to respond to God's Word in faith and submission again and again and again so that we know the truth personally, so that we know the truth in our hearts so that we brought ourselves into the light of the truth and we see who we really are. And we see what God has to say about us and how we respond to Him. We need to know the truth through the Word deeply and personally. Secondly, as we know the truth, we also need to recognize antichrists. We need to recognize their lies. Whether they are those who deny Christ in word or in deed, if they teach us to do likewise... They are opposed to Christ. They are enemies of Christ, perverting the gospel and striving by their own actions and words to lead others away into the same condemnation. We need to recognize the lies of the Antichrist and we need to know the truth and how to defend the truth against it. This is what Jude said he wrote for. In Jude, verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend earnestly, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The same old message, contend for it, stand up, fight for it, know how to disprove the lies and the arguments of those who would oppose the faith laid down once for the saints. And thirdly, don't be shaken or deceived by antichrists. When others come with new teaching, with new doctrine that does not come from God's word, that twists and perverts God's word, 
don't buy into it. Don't let it affect you. Don't let it get to you. Don't let it make you start to question, have I really understood the gospel? I was reading in the Valley of Vision this morning, and, and there's a, a line in a, a prayer regarding, um, regarding assurance that said that we do wrong. We wrong the work of the Spirit within us when we deny when we deny our new life, when we, deny, um, when we deny that we have a new principle of life at work within us, when we look at ourselves and seeing the work of the Spirit, we call ourselves unconverted, we're slandering the Spirit if we see the work of God in our hearts and we say it's not there. If we've known what it is to be saved in Christ and then we start to question if the Spirit has really taught us truth at all, we wrong and we offend the Spirit by calling Him impotent in our lives when indeed we see the fruit of His work in causing us to trust in Christ. So don't go back and question if the Spirit has truly taught you when false doctrine comes up contrary to the Scriptures. Hold fast to the same old message. I want to speak specifically to the young people, to the children, the teenagers in here. As we've been looking at uh, our own son's transition into high school uh, with homeschooling and, and looking towards college and thinking about the future, I've been reminded of my own transition from homeschooling into the world, uh, my transition into a public school and just the culture shock that was there. And kids, as you're growing up, there is a world out there that is full of lies. There is a world out there that is trying with all its might to cause you to turn away from the truth that you've been taught as you've grown up in Christian homes, as you've grown up under the Word of God. There are those out there, many antichrists, who are trying to turn you away from Christ. Take the time now to know God's Word deeply, to know it truly, and to be convinced and committed that you will not waver on the truth of God's word. You will not waver on the truth of the gospel. Make that commitment now. Learn to recognize the lies now. While you have parents, while you have the church family that is helping you to grow in these things, take advantage of this time to prepare yourselves for the lies of the world. I want to leave us all today with the exhortation of 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. There the apostle writes, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Let us go to him in prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that your word would not return void as you have promised it won't, but that your word would accomplish its intended purpose. God, we pray that your word would convict those who are separated from Christ of their separation that your word would convict those who are enemies of Christ of their enmity, that they would see that they have stood opposed to the one who made them, that they have stood opposed to your Son, your Messiah, God in the flesh, that they would fear the wrath that comes on those who will not repent. God, we ask that you would, by your Spirit today, slay the lie of pride that would cause us to turn away from such mercy, to turn away from such grace and kindness because we don't want to call ourselves sinners, because we don't want to call ourselves wicked as we are. God, I ask that your spirit would humble every heart in this room to recognize our need for a Savior and to thank you and to praise you for your gift of a Savior who saves wicked sinners like we have been. God, we thank you that while we were once antichrist, you have caused your people to trust in Christ, to lay down our arms, 
and to join ourselves to the side of the true and eternal King of glory. We thank you that you have prompted us, that you have caused us to trust in Christ because of your Spirit. We ask that you would cause us not to blaspheme your Spirit by denying his work within us, but that you would cause us to recognize the work of your Spirit that is contrary to our own sinful natures, that you would cause us to throw ourselves wholeheartedly into pursuing holiness with joy, that we might be like Christ, that we might please our Father in heaven who loves us and gave his Son for us. God, we ask that you would strengthen us by the anointing of your Spirit, that you would cause us to know all things truly, that you would cause us to understand and to apply your word in every part, and that you would cause us to abide in Christ by abiding in your faithful message, by abiding in your word, abiding in your gospel, not only with our minds, but with our hearts and with our hands too. Cause us to abide in your gospel every day, to fix our eyes on Christ, to find him to be the greatest treasure in our lives, to find living for Christ to be our greatest joy and our greatest goal and aim in every part of life. Cause us to do all that we do truly for the sake of the glory of God, whether in work or in school, whether in chores or play, whether in service or in conversation or even in rest, God, we ask that you would cause us to fix our gaze on Christ, to abide in him, to remain in him. And God, we ask that you would guard us against the many lies that exist in this world, the many lies that would try to lead us away from the true gospel and the true Christ. You would cause us to stand firm until you bring us home or until Christ comes to bring us home. God, please, Have your way in us by your Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We praise you for the gift of your Spirit. We pray all this in the name of Christ and for his eternal glory. Amen. As we transition now to the Lord's Supper, if you have children in the nursery, I'd like to dismiss you to go and uh, gather your children so that the nursery workers and all of us can be here together for the Lord's Supper. And those of us who are remaining will turn in our hymnals to... Uh, Hymn number 129, we'll sing together, Ferris Lord Jesus. Hymn number 129, our Trinity hymnals, and please stand together once we've found the hymn.